Editorial note and preface of the joyful wisdom. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Tim Sherman Chase. The joyful wisdom by Friedrich Nietzsche. Translated by Thomas Common. I stay to mine own house confined, nor graft my wits on alien stock, and mock at every master mind that never at itself could mock. Editorial note by Oscar Levy The Joyful Wisdom, written in 1882, just before Zarathustra, is rightly judged to be one of Nietzsche's best books. Here the essentially grave and masculine face of the poet-philosopher is seen to light up and suddenly break into a delightful smile. The warmth and kindness that beams from his features will astonish those hasty psychologists who have never divined that behind the destroyer is the creator, and behind the blasphemer the lover of life. In the retrospective evaluation of his work, which appears in Eke Homo, the author himself observes with truth that the fourth book, Sanctus Januarius, deserves especial attention. Quote, the whole book is a gift from the saint, and the introductory verse expresses my gratitude for the most wonderful month of January that I have ever spent. End quote. Book Fifth, We Fearless Ones, and the Appendix, Songs of Prince Free as a Bird, and the Preface were added to the second edition in 1887. The translation of Nietzsche's poetry has proved to be a more embarrassing problem than that of his prose. Not only has there been a difficulty in finding adequate translators, a difficulty overcome, it is hoped, by the choice of Miss Peter and Mr. Cohen. But it cannot be denied that even in the original poems are of unequal merit. By the side of such masterpieces as To the Minstrel are several verses of comparatively little value. The editor, however, did not feel justified in making a selection, as it was intended that the edition should be complete. The heading, Jest, Ruse and Revenge, of the Prelude in Rhyme, is borrowed from Goethe. End of editorial note Preface to the Second Edition 1. Perhaps more than one preface would be necessary for this book. And after all, it might still be doubtful whether anyone could be brought nearer to the experiences in it by means of prefaces without having himself experienced something similar. It seems to have been written in the language of the thawing wind. There is wantonness, restlessness, contradiction and April weather in it, so that one is constantly reminded of the proximity of winter as of the victory over it. The victory which is coming, which must come, which has perhaps already come. Gratitude continually flows forth, 
as if the most unexpected thing has happened, the gratitude of a convalescent, for convalescence was this most unexpected thing. Joyful wisdom, that implies the saturnalia of a spirit which has patiently withstood a long, frightful pressure, patiently, strenuously, impassionately, without submitting but without hope, and which is now suddenly o'erpowered with hope, the hope of the health, the intoxication of convalescence. What wonder that much that is unreasonable and foolish thereby comes to light, much wanton tenderness expended even on problems which have a prickly hind, and are not therefore fit to be fondled and allured. The whole book is really nothing but a revel after long privation and impotence. The frolicking of returning energy, of newly awakened belief in a tomorrow and after tomorrow, of sudden sentience and prescience of a future, of near adventures, of seas open once more, and aims once more permitted and believed in. And what is now all behind me? This track of desert, exhaustion, unbelief and frigidity in the midst of youth, this advent of grey hairs at the wrong time, this tyranny of pain, surpassed, however, by the tyranny of pride which repudiated the consequences of pain, and consequences are comforts, this radical isolation, as defence against the contempt of mankind, become morbidly clairvoyant, this restriction upon principle to all that is bitter, sharp, and painful in knowledge, as prescribed by the disgust which has gradually resulted from impudent spiritual diet and pampering, it is called romanticism. Oh, who could realize all those feelings of mine? He, however, who could do so would certainly forgive me everything, and more than a little folly, boisterousness, and joyful wisdom. For example, the handful of songs which are given along with the book on this occasion, songs in which a poet makes merry over all poets in a way not easily pardoned, Alas, it is not only on the poets and their fine, quote, lyrical sentiments, unquote, that this reconvalescence must vent his malignity. Who knows what kind of victim he seeks, what kind of monster of material for parody will allure him ere long? Insipid Tragedia It is said, at the conclusion of this seriously frivolous book, let people be on their guard. Something or other extraordinarily bad and wicked announces itself. Insipid paradia. There is no doubt. 2. But let us leave Herr Nietzsche. What does it matter to people that Herr Nietzsche has got well again? A psychologist knows few questions so attractive as those concerning the relations of health to philosophy, and in the case when he himself falls sick, he carries with him all his scientific curiosity into his sickness. For, granted that one is a person, one has necessarily also the philosophy of one's personality. There is, however, an important distinction here. 
with the one it is his defects which philosophize, with the other it is his riches and powers. The former requires his philosophy, whether it be as support, sedative, or medicine, as salvation, elevation, or self-alienation. With the latter it is merely a fine luxury, at best the voluptuousness of a triumphant gratitude which must inscribe itself ultimately in cosmic capitals on the heaven of ideas. In the other more usual case, however, when states of distress occupy themselves with philosophy, paren, as is the case with all sickly thinkers, and perhaps the sickly thinkers preponderate in the history of philosophy, end paren, what will happen to the thought itself which is brought under the pressure of sickness? This is the important question for psychologists, and here experiment is possible. We philosophers do just like a traveller who resolves to awake at a given hour, and then quietly yields himself to sleep. We surrender ourselves temporarily, body and soul, to the sickness, supposing we become ill, we shut, as it were, our eyes on ourselves. And, as the traveller knows that something does not sleep, that something counts the hours and will wake him, we also know that the critical moment will find us awake, that when something will spring forward and surprise the spirit in the very act, I mean in weakness, or reversion, or submission, or obduracy, or obscurity, or whatever the morbid conditions are called, which in times of good health have the pride of the spirit opposed to them. Paren, for it is as in the old rhyme, quote, The spirit proud, peacock and horse, are the three proudest things of earthly source. End quote, end paren. After such self-questionings and self-testings, one learns to look with a sharper eye at all that has hitherto been philosophized. One divines better than before the arbitrary byways, side-streets, resting-places, and sunny-places of thought. To which suffering thinkers, precisely as sufferers, are led and misled, one knows now in what direction the sickly body and its requirements unconsciously press, push, and allure the spirit. Towards the sun, stillness, gentleness, patience, medicine, refreshment in any sense whatever. Every philosophy which puts peace higher than war, every ethic which has a negative grasp of the idea of happiness, every metaphysic and physic that knows a finale, an ultimate condition of any kind whatever, every predominating ascetic or religious longing for an aside, a beyond, an outside, an above. All these permit one to ask whether sickness has not been the motive which inspired the philosopher. The unconscious disguising of physiological requirements under the cloak of the objective, the ideal, the purely spiritual, is carried on to an alarming extent. And I have often enough asked myself whether, on the whole, philosophy hitherto has not generally 
been merely an interpretation of the body and a misunderstanding of the body. Behind the loftiest estimates of values by which the history of thought has hitherto been governed, misunderstandings of the bodily constitution, either of individuals, classes, or entire races are concealed. One may always primarily consider these audacious freaks of metaphysic, and especially its answers to the question of the worth of existence, as symptoms of certain bodily constitutions. And if, on the whole, when scientifically determined, not a particle of significance attaches to such affirmations and denials of the world, they nevertheless furnish the historian and psychologist with hints so much the more valuable, paren, as we have said, and paren, as symptoms of the bodily constitution, its good or bad condition, its fullness, powerfulness, and sovereignty in history, or else of its obstructions, exhaustions, and impoverishments, its premonitions of the end, its will to the end. I still expect that a philosophical physician, in the exceptional sense of the word, one who applies himself to the problem of the collective health of peoples, periods, races, and mankind generally, will some day have the courage to follow out my suspicion to its ultimate conclusions and venture on the judgment that in all philosophizing it has not been a question of quote, truth unquote, at all, but of something else, namely, of health, futurity, growth, power, life. Three. It will be surmised that I should not like to take leave ungratefully of that period of severe sickness, the advantage of which is not even yet exhausted in me, for I am sufficiently conscious of what I have in advance of the spiritually robust generally in my changeful state of health. A philosopher who has made the tour of many states of health, and always makes it anew, has also gone through just as many philosophies. He really cannot do otherwise than transform his condition on every occasion into the most ingenious posture and position. This art of transfiguration is just philosophy. We philosophers are not at liberty to separate body and soul, as people separate them. We are still less at liberty to separate soul and spirit. We are not thinking frogs, we are not objectifying and registering apparatuses with cold entrails. Our thoughts must be continually born to us out of our pain, and we must, mother-like, share with them all that we have in us of blood, heart, ardour, joy, passion, pang, conscience, fate, and fatality. Life that means for us to transform constantly into light and flames all that we are, and also all that we meet with, we cannot possibly do otherwise. 
and as regard to sickness, should we not be almost tempted to ask whether we could in general dispense with it? It is a great pain only which is the ultimate emancipator of the spirit, for it is the teacher of the strong suspicion which makes an X out of every U, a true, correct X, i.e., the anti-penultimate letter. Translator's footnote. That means literally to put the numerical X instead of the numerical V, paren formally U, end paren. Hence it means to double a number unfairly, to exaggerate, humbug, cheat. End of translator's footnote. It is a great pain only, the long, slow pain which takes time, by which we are burned as it were with green wood, that compels us philosophers to descend into our ultimate depths and divest ourselves of all trust, all good nature, veiling, gentleness, and averageness, wherein we have perhaps formally installed our humanity. I doubt whether such pain quote, improves unquote, us, but I know that it deepens us. Be it that we learn to comfort it with our pride, our scorn, our strength of will, doing like the Indian who, however sorely tortured, revenges himself on his tormentor with his bitter tongue. Be it that we withdraw from pain into the oriental nothingness, it is called nirvana, into mute, benumbed, deaf self-surrender, self-forgetting, and self-effacement. One emerges from such long, dangerous exercises in self-mastery as another being, with several additional notes of interrogation, and above all, the will to question more than ever, more profoundly, more strictly, more sternly, more wickedly, more quietly than has ever been questioned hitherto. Confidence in life is gone. Life itself has become a problem. Let it not be imagined that one has necessarily become a hypochondriac thereby. Even love of life is still possible, only one loves differently. It is the love of a woman of whom one is doubtful. The charm, however, of all of that is problematic. The delight in the X is too great in those more spiritual, more spiritualized men, not to spread itself again and again like a clear glow over all the trouble of the problematic, over all the danger of uncertainty, and even over the jealousy of the lover. We know a new happiness. Four. Finally, paren, that the most essential may not remain unsaid, end paren, one comes back out of such abysses, out of such severe sickness, and out of the sickness of strong suspicion new-born, with the skin cast more sensitive, more wicked, with a finer taste for joy, with a more delicate tongue for all good things, with a merrier disposition, with a second and more dangerous innocence in joy, more childish at the same time, and a hundred times more refined than ever before. Oh, 
How repugnant to us now is pleasure, coarse, dull, drab pleasure, as the pleasure seekers, our quote, cultured unquote, classes, our rich and ruling classes, usually understand it. How malignantly we now listen to the great holiday hubbub in which quote, cultured people unquote, and city men at present allow themselves to be forced to quote, spiritual enjoyment unquote, by art, books, and music with the help of spirituous liquors. How the theatrical cry of passion now pains our ears, how strange to our taste has all the romantic riot and sensuous bustle with the cultured populace love become. Paren, together with their aspiration after the exalted, the elevated, and the intricate, end paren. No, if we convalescents need art at all, it is another art, a mocking, light, volatile, divinely serene, divinely ingenious art, which blazes up like a clear flame into a cloudless heaven. Above all, an art for artists, only for artists. We at last know better what is first of all necessary for it, namely cheerfulness, every kind of cheerfulness my friends also as artists i should like to prove it we now know something too well we men of knowledge oh how well we are now learning to forget and not know as artists and as to our future we are not likely to be found again in the tracks of those Egyptian youths who at night make temples unsafe, embrace statues, and would fain unveil, uncover, and put in a clear light everything which for good reason is kept concealed. Translator's footnote, an allusion to Schiller's poem, The Veiled Image of Sais, end translator's footnote. No, we have got disgusted with this bad taste, this will to truth, to, quote, truth at all costs, unquote, this youthful madness in the love of truth. We are now too experienced, too serious, too joyful, too singed, too profound for that. We no longer believe that truth remains truth when the veil is withdrawn from it, we have lived long enough to believe this. At present, we regard it as a matter of propriety not to be anxious either to see everything naked, nor to be present at everything, or to understand and, quote, know, unquote, everything. Is it true that the good God is everywhere present? Asked a little girl of her mother. I think that is indecent. A hint to philosophers? One should have more reverence for the shamefacedness with which nature has concealed herself behind enigmas and motley uncertainties. Perhaps truth is a woman who has reasons for not showing her reasons. Perhaps her name is Baubo, to speak in Greek. Oh, those Greeks! They knew how to live! For that purpose it is necessary to keep bravely to the surface the fold 
and the skin, to worship appearance, to believe in forms, tones, and words, in the whole Olympus of appearance. Those Greeks were superficial from profundity. And we are not coming back precisely to this point, we daredevils of the spirit, who have scaled the highest and most dangerous peak of contemporary thought, and have looked around from it, have looked down from it? Are we not precisely in this respect Greeks? Worshippers of all forms, of tones, and of words? And precisely on that account, artists? Ruta, near Genoa, Autumn, 1886 End of Preface